0: Right, we're watching Legal AF live right now. As the walls are closing in on Diaper Donald, Jack Smith strikes back. Come on, man! How about some pre-trial incarceration? You
1: know, at at, at in the next forty.
2: hours um, or so, there will be a
1: verdict. Uh, Just to remind everybody, New York Attorney General Letitia James has already won on summary judgment as it relates to the dissolution, uh, the termination of Trump's and the Trump Organization's business certificates. We're now focused on disgorgement as a remedy. Disgorgement means kind of the return of the funds that Donald Trump made inappropriately through his engaging in fraud that's what discord is returning it to the state of new york and there's some also some other remedies as well including banning donald trump from conducting real estate in new york for the rest of his life adding trumps adult children from conducting real estate in the state of new york for at least five years or for up to five years uh, and a or permanent monitorship there's an independent monitor Judge Barbara Jones, um, but whether it's retired federal Judge Barbara Jones or somebody like that, who would be looking through the books and records of the Trump organization on a much longer term basis. He is with, a
0: monster. Um, an
1: These are the people's comments. Post judgment, that can keep on being issued. So the New York attorney general have to new case, case, case. If more fraud is no conditions have been enforced. Right Justice Arthur and Goran. And Justice Arthur and Goron can make rulings <sighs> relatively quickly. Has anyone followed through investigations with a threat? to happen quickly? Um, and in terms of He's the disgorgement amount, of the justice uh, system, James, New York Attorney General, requested uh, $370 million or so. Uh, that Why does not are these judges are chicken pre-judgment shit? prejudgment interest as well as penalties. If you talk about 9% compounding, six year statute of limitations period, you can see how that can bring the number up to close to half a billion dollars with the interest plus uh, additional penalties. So uh, I'm going to be looking for, for that. Is there going to be additional sanctions against Alina Abba and Trump's lawyers for their conduct? I'm looking for that. But, Karen, as, as we get to this point in the conclusion of, of this trial, and I want to get your thoughts there, What you expect, I, I, I just was looking back at some of these attacks Trump made on Justice Arthur and on the judge presiding over the case, and so there's the post he made today. When and he's probably posted close to 300 to 500 things like this, like all in caps, all unhinged, a hey, uh, Democratic judge operative hates me, you know, all this disgusting stuff. It's not even worth, you know, our time, be kind of rehashing it anymore. So you know, he he posts, uh, he, he, Donald Trump posts. These conspiracy theories about Justice Arthur Ngoron's wife. There was someone on Twitter who had a name that was similar to Ngoron's wife or was the same. And then all of these kind of right-wing MAGA conspiracy theorists, the same people who were saying that Taylor Swift rigged the Super Bowl that crew, said that this Twitter account was Ngoron's wife because they had the same name. Wife. You got Donald Trump posting photos of the judge with his shirt off. Um, you got, uh, I think we have, that, not that photo, Salty, although that, that's the photo of Donald Trump, and I, I, I censored it here with, um, attacking Justice Arthur and Goran's law clerk and calling her Schumer's girlfriend, um, that, that got a gag order against Donald Trump based on that conduct. It was actually the Midas Petri that, uh, that unearthed, that unearthed that. That's from Representative Clay Higgins, one of the MAGA Congress members out there who, uh, put the photo of the hitman from uh, Godfather next to Ngoron threatening his life, and then there was that photo that he that he saw where Trump posted uh, Ngoron's, uh, you know body without a shirt on, and then there's posts of Trump uh, posting about Ngoron's son. So, and, and we're talking about hundreds of posts like this, Karen. I mean, get
2: me on the ballot and.
1: Face. <laughs> your illustrious legal career both in public and now kind of private practice i mean the, the behavior like this is so unhinged so lawless perhaps you can speak to that first and then kind of your overall views and assessment of, of, of what's going to happen in this case
2: well, like any other defendant which and i, I sound like a broken record because i've said this a million times but i think it's worth saying any other defendant Behave behaved the way Donald Trump behaves, would be locked up, period, full stop. He would be put in jail. You cannot. You cannot threaten people. You cannot encourage violence against people. You cannot dox people, which is essentially what he's doing by bringing in other people's family members. You know, there's been enough people who have responded to his clarion calls for violence, not just not... Um, I call it 9-11, January 6th, but it's, you know, such a dark, it was the other dark day in our in our, in our our lives, you know, because it almost killed our democracy, um, but not just January so 6th. So lock him the right? fuck it up was, already, it's, get it's me on the ballot for sheriff in Tucson, Arizona, I'll
0: get a I mean, warrant J- J- for and his arrest, smiley and face. Swatting,
2: and it's during this trial, and... And it doesn't matter who it is, whether it's Letitia James or Alvin Bragg or Jack Smith, they all are all getting death threats. They're all being accused of her, of um, being racist and all, all the other terrible things that that Donald Trump says and his followers he, he he knows he said to caitlin collins on cnn and during that infamous town hall that his oh, listeners uh and followers they listened to him like no one else so he knows is aware and he's admitted it and if he was anybody else he would be put in do you remember sam bankman freed who was um who was the uh, prosecuted here in the southern district for The fall of FTX, the cryptocurrency, he took one tiny misstep and was going to publish a a letter that um, that that uh, his girlfriend, who's a witness in the case, uh, gave to him. And guess what the judge did? Put him in. He was put in until he went to trial. That was it, because each Donald Trump is a criminal defendant. four different cases that means he was arrested and he was released from being arrested from custody he was released with conditions and those conditions require him to behave they require him not to break laws to break the law And every time he threatens somebody it's not just words these have consequences and actions and and that's that's how Donald Trump is being treated differently than other defendants and and at some point people will stop allowing that but i, I don 't know when or how how that will occur, but I expect that what, that what Judge and does hopefully will include some kind of whether it's a restraining order or something that is permanent that that does not allow. Donald Trump to go after his family, go after his law clerk, Um, you don't have a First Amendment right to do that. You don't, you know, there's, there, words aren't, you can't just say when you say, when you say something in words, you can't just say, oh, First Amendment, First Amendment, right? Um, There's, there's, there's hundreds of years of, of body of law that, that says when it, when it crosses the line into conduct, it's no longer protected by the First Amendment. And, and so I think somebody is going to uh, hopefully make him finally stop, and maybe that's Judge Angoron. I don't know, but uh, you know, taking away his businesses in, in Manhattan and, and potentially half a billion dollars, I think that, I think he'll hear I think he'll hear that loud and clear, and that's going to send a huge message to him. So, go ahead.
1: I was going to say he's going to have to also post uh, bond. Equal to the amount of the judgment, right, or have some collateral, and time's already ticking on the Eugene Carroll uh, necessity to post a bond if he wants to appeal there. 83.3 million dollar bond to match the um, amount there, and I don't think. I guess there are some times where a judge could be accommodating when it comes to the type of collateral that could be posted, but. Where the collateral is fruit of the poisonous tree, which is the actual fraudulent collateral, that's the basis of the lawsuit. I I think that judges who have been attacked the way they have by Donald Trump will be less uh, susceptible to uh, finding leniency in arguments about creative forms of collateral. What what do you think there,
2: Karen? Yeah, I mean, exactly. Why Why would Judge N'Goran do anything for him if and, and bend over backwards for him when he's done nothing but, but torture him and his family? I mean, he's the worst defendant that I've ever seen, right? He's And, and I've had difficult defendants. I've had very difficult defendants. And Donald Trump takes the cake. So he, he's just one of those, he, he's just, he's really, doesn't listen. He he thinks the, the world should treat him differently. So I agree with you.
1: And then this ongoing independent monitorship, like I think the headlines are ultimately going to be the verdict amount three hundred and seventy million half a billion dollars, but the the legal geek in me is very interested, Karen, in the re- other remedial kind of measures there, and like one issue, the ongoing independent monitorship. You have someone like a retired federal judge Barbara Jones, who's been the independent monitor for the past fourteen months. She sent this letter. Justice and Goron before the verdict um, you know, about two weeks ago at this point, saying things like, look, my powers don't allow me to do more than flag these issues. But let me tell you, over the past 14 months, I found incomplete, erroneous um, and inconsistent financial statements. And I've even identified a 48 million dollar loan from some entity Trump claims to be 100 percent owner of. Or the money just simply doesn't exist which you know it could potentially even be something as serious as a kind of unlawful debt parking scheme so with that type of ongoing monitorship the power there and i'm not sure if you've seen this from from personal practice there and in, in something something in new york New York attorney general would not, as I understand it, be required to have to keep on filing lawsuits that take years. You get the judgment and then an independent monitor now can go back to court and say, look what I found, make an order. Look what I found, make an order. So this isn't the end. No, this is kind of the beginning of a whole new process. Even after Trump gets hit with this monumental verdict amount.
2: I think that's the true power of this, right? Is, she, is he can impose certain conditions on Donald Trump, and there's other defendants, if you recall, um, in the case. So, so let, let's back up a second and talk about what Judge Ngoron is going to find and not find on Friday, if that's when the decision comes down. So, so he's going to have to make an assessment as to each of the other defendants, including uh, two of his adult. His sons, who are also defendants, and I think that I think Judge Ngoron might not um, might not find them liable. And the reason is number one, he signaled that he didn't see their intent. But number two, there's I think six or seven charges on that that he, they were charged with. And count number one is what what you referred to, that um, this persistent. Fraud, uh, this persistent business fraud, un- in, under the executive law in New York, sixty-three twelve, Judge and Goron already found that th- that Donald Trump and others violated that. But the rest of the charges have an added element. It's it's pers- it's the persistent fraud plus the elements of certain criminal statutes. Um, and I'm not sure they will have met that burden on as to all the counts or as to all the defendants. And so I think Judge ngoran is going to look at each defendant and each charge and make individual rulings as to each. And and the good, I mean, first of all, that's what he's obligated to do, and that's what a trial is for. And, and what I think is, is going to be the added benefit of that, is that it. It will it will insulate the judge on appeal because one of really Trump's main argument and what he says all the time and he said in that tweet that he issued today was that this is a judge that hates me, he already had his mind made up against me and and he doesn't listen, and this was just a sham, et cetera, et cetera if the judge doesn't if, it, if he makes those individual rulings and he he doesn't find every single count against every single defendant, that's one way of insulating it, that argument, because the Court of Appeals will say, no, that's not true. He did listen. And this is what he found. And it also, I think, interestingly, what the fact that those charges are harder to prove than the persistent fraud charge, I think it also highlights why Alvin Bragg, who got a lot of flack for not bringing that case, because it was exactly the same case, only a higher burden of proof. It would have had to prove those elements beyond a reasonable doubt. But when you have banks coming in and saying, we, would, we didn't rely on this. We didn't rely on this information. We it didn't matter we weren't the victims of this i think i don't think you could have gotten over the beyond a reasonable doubt hurdle whether you're going to get over the um the lower preponderance of the evidence hurdle i think i think he will have it i I think for sure that some of those will be found uh will be found against donald trump but i think the trial really highlighted why alvin bragg went with the stormy daniels First election interference case, rather than than this case, because because this case require requires a lot more um, a lot more. So I think that's what you're going to see with the verdict. I think you're going to see some of the defendants, like some of the kids. It won't be all the charges against all the kids, but I think you're right that the ultimate verdict, because it kind of doesn't matter. Um, the judge is going to is going to because the persistent fraud is there, that count one is there, the top charge. You are going to see a sweeping sweeping verdict that I think will be protected on
1: appeal. Well, look, we could be heading into March where Trump having to post a bond of somewhere near $500, $600 million. Um, And then, as we talked about earlier on the show, a trial date being set in the Manhattan District Attorney criminal case. And there's a world where, by the time we approach the summer, Trump is a felon, Trump owes close to half a billion or more in judgments. And I'm sure when we started Legal AF and we told the Legal AFers and the Midas Mighty out there that that's where we saw this going. Um, and if we said that's what was going to happen, I think we'd probably have a lot of doubters then. But. I think it's important that we follow the data like meteorologists follow the weather patterns and we can have some pretty reliable predictive measures. You know, court is a is a human process. It's not an algorithm, though. So sometimes strange things, quirky things happen, but, you know, we've done our best to try to everybody where we think this uh is is happening speaking of which when we get back i want to talk about what's going on in the washington dc federal criminal case donald trump seeking an application for a a stay with the united states supreme court he filed that on february 12th which was that last date that the dc circuit court uh, gave them we'll talk about that and special counsel jack smith filing And you and I thought that was going to happen, Karen, Special Counsel Jack Smith filing his reply, even though the Supreme Court gave Jack Smith until um, the
2: 20th, six days early.
1: Yeah, you know, we we said Jack Smith will file that within 24 to 48 hours. And that's exactly what he did. We'll talk about Jack Smith's response. We'll talk about um, uh, Trump's filing. Uh, We'll talk about all of
2: that when we come back from uh, our last quick break. January is coming gone, but it's not too late to start your New Year's resolution. And no, I'm not talking about getting tangled up yet. in an elliptical or eating some depressing food. Here's <laughs> one that will stick, which is...
0: Comfort food. Yeah, I gained a lot of weight during the holidays. Very depressing. Without my uh, spirit animal, Dr. Baker, service dog. And the rest of my animal family. So, uh, make sure you get me on the ballot so I can get them back. I think uh, if I win this election, I should be able to get my service dog back. It was a crew summer. Crew. It uh, seems to be like freezing. Well. I noticed there's like the biggest spike I've ever seen. At, um, like 3,500 in one day which is um that's the new records so thanks for that i don't know exactly what it was maybe this combination i've been doing some pretty groovy programming lately did some gaia mind control donald marshall and hollywood jordan maxwell so the hits just keep on coming man um i just and I uh, used them as a I means to kind of reach out to the community, like he did uh, one on the <coughs> Mount Sinai and how Moses was tripping balls. I've <laughs> already done of Heaven. I'll be posting that shortly. Solomon's Temple and the Ark. Hmm. Okay. Did I do that yet? I don't think I did. Jordan Maxwell. I'm having a Jordan Maxwell binge fest. I wonder if I had created that word. I invented that word binge fest. It's a cruel summer.
1: This is Secret Life of Symbols.
0: The Ark of the Covenant and King Solomon Temple, two of the greatest mysteries of the ancient world, leaves many baffled when searching for proof of their existence. Jordan The Michael Lost Prince Ark
3: Peter. of the Hebrews is today referred to as the Lost Ark of the Covenant. It was a nice, very nice picture of what the Lost Ark of the Covenant of the Hebrews looked like. But here we have a picture of the Ark of the Covenant carried by the priest of Israel. It's a large chest with uh, two angels sitting on the top of the chest. And incidentally, the chest was said to be so important and so holy that one could not actually touch it. You would not want to touch it, for you will die. And so God said to put ring eyes on the side of the chest and put poles through it so you could carry it without touching it. So that's interesting that this is a general idea about what the Ark of the Covenant of the Hebrews Radioactive,
0: looked like. Dar, 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 the Radioactive. The Ark of the
3: Covenant. It was a symbolic connection between God and the Hebrew people. The the things which both God and the Hebrew people held to be so sacred to their relationship. So the idea was that both God and the Hebrew people agreed on certain things were so important that they would put it into this chest and protect it and keep it together. And so it represented God's connections with the ancient Hebrew people, uh, the most important symbols. We're told in the book of Revelation uh, what the items were, and we'll get into that later but because it's actually written in the Bible what was in the Ark of the Covenant. It wasn't used as a weapon as such, but we're told that it, it wasn't able to kill you. It was able to strike you dead if you touched it. But I don't know if it was actually used as a weapon, but it was a protection. It was a generator. There was a generator. That, that if you touched it without the permission, it fits the... you could die. Today we have pictures like this showing the, uh, the, uh, the Israeli pyramid. priests, the ancient priests of Israel, and showing how much they adore
0: they this the pyramid.
3: Uh, an important ark of the Covenant. Here's a picture of King David uh, bringing the lost Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem, and everyone not in the procession is on their knees realizing that the Ark was representing the very presence of their God in their presence. And these were very holy symbols to the Jewish people. There have been many books written about the lost Ark of the Covenant, of course, and two books in particular that that deal with the point I wish to make. Uh, One is called Lost Secrets of the Sacred Ark. And of course, there have been a lot of lost secrets relating to the sacred Ark. Sir Lawrence Gardner in England, which was Sir Lawrence Gardner. he had been knighted by the Queen, and he was an expert on these arcane subjects like the Ark of the Covenant. And then there's another one called Secrets and Mysteries of the Lost Ark. So, the reason why these two are important to my conversation is because I want to emphasize that there were a lot of secrets and mysteries in relation to the Ark that maybe people still don't know today. So the most important secret of all concerning the lost Ark of the Hebrews is that it was not Hebrew at all to start with. There was no Hebrew Ark in history. The whole idea of an Ark of the Covenant, Covenant simply means contract, and so the whole idea of the Ark of the Contract or Covenant was not Hebrew at all, it was Egyptian. And Mm -hmm. so let me show you what I'm talking about. It's from the pyramid. If you go to Bible dictionaries and look up the word ark, you will see that even the Bible dictionaries tell you that the very word ark comes from uh, the Egyptian. And then it shows you a typical Egyptian ark. And then if you go to another Bible dictionary, it talks about the Egyptian ark or the sacred chest. And so now you begin to see, when you start doing the research on the lost Ark of the Covenant, you begin to see that uh, a lot of pictures have come out of the ancient world showing you that the Egyptians had an Ark, not the Hebrews. And here is an Egyptian Ark and an Egyptian priest in an Egyptian museum. So my point in showing you this is the fact that the Lost Ark of the Covenant was borrowed, the idea was borrowed from the Egyptians. Here's an ancient Egyptian priest uh, with their golden ark uh, on an ancient Egyptian wall, uh, painting showing the priest carrying the golden ark. And this particular one picture is on the temple of Ramesses at Abydos in Egypt, and you will see there is the lost There is the ark, the ark of the contract, the ark of the covenant. But you don't see Hebrew priests carrying it. You see Egyptians, because it was an Egyptian ark to start with. Uh, it's an Egyptian god Anubis on the left, uh, sitting on on the right on his holy ark. Egyptian ark Anubis was a was pictured as a dog because it represents the star system of Sirius, the dog star, and so. Sirius, the Dog Star. When in order to honor the god of, in Sirius, they they made it into a dog. So because Sirius is referred to as the Dog Star, but the point is, on the right-hand side, you will see the Dog Star uh, sitting on the Holy Ark of the Covenant in Egypt. And here is uh, here is that same ark when it was originally found by Lord Carnarvon in Egypt many many years ago. Uh, If you remember in the movie, Indiana Jones has to find the lost ark in a tomb in Egypt. The very word, uh, the lower paragraph says, the very idea of the Ark of the Covenant was copied from the Egyptians. So this is what you'll find in most all reference work. It will tell you, even in Bible dictionaries, will tell you uh, there was no Ark of the Covenant in Israel, but there was an original Ark of the contract in Egypt. So here we see on the left-hand side the Egyptians carrying their holy ark, and on the right side the Hebrews carrying the uh, the, the, the the ark, which was the borrowed story. And so the original ark and the mm-hmm. mythical ark. This is very important to keep in mind because when you look at the lost ark of the covenant, it supposedly is a very important symbol to the Hebrew religion, but now we're finding out that is actually an Egyptian symbol, had nothing to do with the ancient Hebrew. Even National Geographic did uh, a a piece on, a a video show on the Ark of the Covenant, Mm -hmm. in which they entitled it, Many Legends but No Evidence. The idea of having a holy chest or a holy ark is an Egyptian idea, it's an Egyptian concept, the point being is that it would have been a copy of an Egyptian Ark. And so today, incidentally, in the Ethiopian Orthodox Church in Ethiopia, Mount Zion. they claim to actually have the original Ark of the Covenant of the Hebrews at that church. But they go on to say that the object is currently kept yeah. under strict guard in the treasury of the church. And so you can't come in to yeah. see it. But they've got it, but you can't see it which is, of course, convenient, because you don't know if they have it or not. If they have it, you can't see it anyway. (laughs) There are many mysteries surrounding the Ark, many questions about what is it and where is it and who actually owns it, Uh, but I don't believe that the Ark of the Covenant uh, ever existed. From From my understanding, it never existed. It was borrowed from day one, the idea. the egyptians however there are many other mysteries and strange things in relation to the ark in the holy bible and the new testament the last book of the bible is called the book of revelation and in the book of revelation it tells you why no one has and no one ever will find the lost ark and it says the temple of god was opened in heaven and there was seen the ark of the covenant, the ark of the testament. All right, now the next uh, subject I would like to share Temple with you. Temple of
0: God is about was open in heaven.
3: King Solomon in the Bible, a very important name in the biblical history of the Hebrews, was King Solomon. And incidentally, the Temple Institute in Jerusalem today. Is preparing, uh, they've already spent $27 million, we're told, on preparing uh, a building for the rebuilding of the Jewish temple, the old Temple of Solomon. Uh, the first thing we need to know about the ancient Temple of King Solomon is that there was no ancient King Solomon to start with. And he didn't have a temple either. Huh. So there are some reference works out there about the temple showing that it was. Uh, it was just a story and that there was no temple and today there are very a lot of academic books being written about the whole idea of king solomon as a king is a myth Mm -hmm. a a king that never existed and so here's here's one article called the myth of solomon Uh, this is written in the department of classical and near eastern studies in melbourne australia another book called the templars or the history of the myth from Solomon's temple. Ultimately, uh, Solomon became king because his father was King David. So, when his father uh, left the kingship, it was given to King Solomon, his son. King Solomon was very famous in history for being a very wise man, and, and very, very highly, you know, intelligent and very interesting. Uh, he was a very wise man, wise King Solomon.
0: Yeah, the very... people
3: were told that he built a whole, uh, a whole nation uh, and, and great temples and all kinds of marvelous things that this King Solomon did for the Jewish people. But in point of fact today, uh, reference works coming out of Israel say that there's no evidence that King Solomon ever lived, and for sure there's no evidence of, of great civilization or or temples, or anything at all, was ever erected to King Solomon. They'd never heard of it. Donald Redford, an author and leading authority Hmm. on the era, uh, writes in frustration about the absence of anything to verify or uh, to prove the Bible stories. He writes, such topics as the foreign policy of King David, or his son Solomon, solomon's trade in horses and in his marriage with pharaoh's daughter must remain themes of the midrash and fictional treatment because it was a fictional story midrash is the commentaries uh, of the ancient rabbis commentaries written about stories that we read in the old testament bible here's philip Davies uh, in search of ancient israel he discounts any possibility, he says, quote, A Davidic empire administered from Jerusalem, the range of indices uh, considered by Jameson Drake, make it necessary for us to exclude the Davidic and the Solomon monarchies, let alone their empire and a non-biblical history of Palestine. So, what the article is saying is that it's very difficult to prove there ever was a King Solomon or a King Solomon's reign of, in Jerusalem. There's just no proof of it. Nothing can be unequivocally attributed to Solomon, nor is there any trace of a great culture that he developed. Hazar, Megiddo, Gezar, they have been widely excavated, and palaces, temples, and fortifications have been found, but none mention Solomon. People believe such myths and they succeed in their purpose because they are attractive stories and convincing. If they were not, they would be useless. The popularity of myths cannot be any So his evidence. name
0: is never mentioned in the— Tra-
3: Been found, but none mentioned
0: Solomon. It says, uh, none mentioned Solomon, and the important buildings seem to be dated before his supposed time and after. Cartouches of.
3: People believe such myths and they succeed in their purpose because they are attractive stories and convincing. If they were not, they would be useless. The popularity of myths cannot be any evidence of their truth. Another article says, The absence of any historical confirmation of a Solomon simply does not uh, deter biblical scholars. God has told them that there was a Solomon, and so what scholarship can contradict that? One of the most popular and, and very well-known are uh, uh, scientists and uh, historians in Israel. His name is Israel Finkelstein, and he has written quite a few very important books here lately concerning uh, Israel's history. And in this one, the antiquity scam exposed the gullibility of believers. Israel Finkelstein, the noted Israeli Archaeologists observed that inscribed objects are extremely rare and proper archaeological digs in Palestine. And yet the antiquities market kept producing them by the cartloads. Mm-hmm. Now, quoting Finkelstein directly, there is, he said, there is an eagerness all over the world in museums to display antiquities of great value. And there is no question that some of them were not careful enough in their methods. It was some sort of a naivete, something about wanting to believe. So it's, if you go on the web uh, yourself Museum, and look up Solomon's,
0: the Israeli Museum has 7,000 objects obtained in this way and the trade in these antiquities continues. To believe. Are called so, if you go on
3: the web uh, yourself and look up Solomon's temple myth, you will see that both Solomon and the idea of his temple is actually considered a myth.
0: around Solomon.
3: Solomon did not exist.
0: Sun and moon.
3: This article is Solomon did not exist. The archaeological evidence in Jerusalem for the famous building projects of Solomon is non existent. 19th and early 20th century excavations around the Temple Mount in Jerusalem failed to identify even a trace of Solomon's fabled temple or palace complex. This hmm. is from Israel site So we see that there are many articles that been written about the idea that the temple and King Solomon were both myths.
0: Hmm.
3: If there was no King David or King Solomon, then where do we get the name Solomon?
0: The The origin of
3: Solomon is simply the name of the sun in three ancient languages, Latin, Hindi, and Egyptian, as you will see. If you do some homework on the subject, you will see that Solomon comes from Saul, Om, and on, three names of the sun. Uh, at the top, you will see Saul is an ancient Roman god, personification of the sun, man, a sun name god, of Heliopolis. In Rome, named Saul. Saul is Latin for the sun. And then OM, Roman Om, god, oh, personifying the, the sun. Of Om, and it's a holy meditation symbol in the Hindi. And uh, so that's where we get OM as an OM. And then, of course, the city of the sun. Today we refer to it as Heliopolis. It is actually in the ancient world called On, O-N. So when you take the three names of the sun, Saul, Om, and On, it becomes Solomon. But there was no man named Solomon. It's the name of the sun in three separate languages. Actually, the original name of Solomon was Shlomo. But the, uh, the Masonic orders during the early Middle Ages seized upon that name and changed it a bit to be Solomon. Uh, it was actually a purposely mistranslated word because Solomon was not the original name of the king. Now we see that Solomon, according to the Masonic order, put Solomon into the, the position of being a sun god. And so
0: that we see
3: that Solomon, according to the Masonic order, put Solomon into the the position of being a sun god. And so the Temple of Solomon was actually, according to the Masonic orders, the Great Pyramid of Egypt. Solomon's Temple was the Great Pyramid of Egypt, according to World Freemasonry. And because the pyramid was called the Pyramid of the Sun. And so it was the it was the Sun was Solomon. Because they are trying to make Solomon represent a sun god, because the sun is very important in world Freemasonry. And so the sun represents light, intellectual, spiritual enlightenment. So the Masonic Order it wants to take the Shomo and make it into Shlomo. Solomon, as we see in the Masonic literature, and pre- present King Solomon as a king of wisdom. He's a very wise king. Wisdom or intellectual, spiritual knowledge. Freemasonry
0: are I didn't quite this often person
3: will change names and change histories. Uh, to fit their uh, their concept of where they're going with symbols let's look at the idea of solomon's temple as it's presented to us today uh, by the masonic order because it's a very important symbol in freemasonry solomon's temple so how do how are we to understand the symbolism that the masonic order uh, designs solomon's temple well, let's look at the, uh, the layout. According to the Masonic order, the old ancient Solomon's temple, as it is uh, even today reproduced, uh, as if it were being built today, it is obviously a phallic symbol. The Masonic order has used the same phallic symbol many times. The architectural uh, symbolism is very obvious. The whole idea of Solomon's temple begins to take on Uh, Because of the world Masonic order and and incidentally the world Masonic order is talking today about rebuilding Solomon's temple But here in Freemasonry today we see Solomon's temple as a Masonic symbolism, but it's based on sexual symbolism a lot of people don't realize Unless you see it from above and see the Masonic architecture The Old Testament Bible is filled with sexual symbols. One uh, example is the story of Jacob and his pillar God, found in the book of Genesis 35, 9 through 15, where Jacob is said to have fallen asleep on a rock, and when he woke up the next morning, he had a vision by God, so he felt that that rock itself was very, uh, very important, a very spiritual symbol, so he said, That this rock that I have slept on is a symbol for God's house, and this is where God is. He's in this rock because I had a uh, a dream that God gave me. After Jacob dreamed that Yahweh stood on a ladder that reached into heaven and promised him great fertility, he awakened out of his sleep, the scripture says, and took the stone that he had put up for his pillow and set it up as a pillar. And poured oil on the top of it. That's from Genesis uh, 28 10 through 22. On another occasion, we read that God appeared to Jacob and promised that nations would be coming out of his loins. And Jacob would set up a pillar in the place where he talked with God, and the pillar of stone, and he poured a drink offering thereon, and he poured oil there upon it. Here's a Typical picture of Jacob pouring the uh, sacred oil on the pillar that he slept on. This was obviously a phallic symbol. So many people attribute things to be sacred when, in point of fact, they may mean something totally different. The whole world knows what happened to the twin towers in New York in 2001. The twin towers has become a very big subject around the world but i want to show you where the idea the concept of twin towers came from we all know about the twin towers and the world trade center in new york and just about everybody on earth has seen it all many times but there's more to the story about the twin towers as you will see most folks are not aware That when you see two tall uh, high-rises standing together that this is a very ancient symbol coming out of the ancient world uh, looking back to thousands of years ago so let's look at the idea of two twin towers and what they symbolically actually represent we see twin towers quite literally around the world in India and hotels, and Italy, and the Middle East, in Egypt, they have twin obelisks, or twin towers. In Islam, they have, all over the Islamic world, you have twin towers before the mosque. In Nazi Germany, they have twin towers, twin towers in churches, and these are in synagogues, for instance. These synagogues have twin towers. In the Masonic order, there is the two twin towers, which are called Jackin and Boaz. Twin towers are everywhere. And there's a reason why there is something called the twin towers. And that's what I want to get into and explain to you where this idea comes from and what it represents. You will begin to see the idea. The very concept of two identical towers is used in Christianity, Judaism, Islam, and, of course, in the, in the secular world. And most people do not realize the actual reason why and what the Twin Towers symbolizes. So let's look at the origins of the idea of building Twin Towers, Twin Pillars, It all started in India thousands of years ago and then to Egypt and finally to today. In the book, Symbol Sex, and the Stars, and Popular Beliefs, which is a book discussing all the ancient symbols in religions, by Ernest Bresenbach, dedicated to understanding the symbolism in the ancient world and how it impacts us today. According to the Egyptians, you had two phallic symbols holding up, uh, holding up the canopy of heaven. The two phallic symbols are the two phallic pillars. Is a very important symbolism in ancient Egypt and it's found quite a few places. The twin towers idea worldwide. In the old ancient Babylonian system, the kings that would rise in the morning between twin towers, two towers. This is the old Babylonian system. In India, you have the gods standing between the two towers. It was an idea of twin columns goes back into the ancient world. The twin towers are connected to the concept in the ancient world of twin phallic pillars. Here we have the twin the pillars on each side of the opening, and then the twin the large twin uh, pillars on both sides. The idea comes from a biblical story about a symbol which today has been taken up by Freemasonry, the Masonic order. Has taken from the Bible uh, the story about Jachin and, and Boaz they were twin towers or they were twin pillars and they represented two phallic pillars and so we're talking about phallic worship now and this is something that a lot of people don't connect to the idea of twin towers but it goes back into an ancient time where the idea was two phallic pillars and they were called Jacob and Boaz in the Bible. And This is a Masonic uh, symbol today. It's been picked up and used in Freemasonry around the world. The reason why is because you need the two to hold up the heavens. You can't do it with one. And so the, uh, the ancient Egyptians always showed two towers or two pillars. There is obviously more yet to the story of Twin Towers, but I'm just giving you a brief introduction to the idea that there is a symbolism involved here that most people are not aware of until you begin to see how many times that idea keeps popping up. A lot of
0: people, when you mention
3: the word new age, it causes visions of uh, people who are into metaphysics, spiritual Crystals. retreats, hallucinogenics. <laughs> All sorts of ideas yeah. are generated by the term new age, <laughs> and it has become a very important subject, especially in the religious world. Are we humans we. on this earth approaching a new age? which is filled with darkness and evil, because this is what Christianity is portraying the New Age as. I want to show you that that is incorrect, that the New Age is in the Bible all the way through the scriptures that talks about the New Age. Everyone has heard the stories of the end of the world. Those, And there's a lot of talk about the New Age is the end of the world. But very few people realize that both subjects about uh, the New Age and the end of the world are the same thing. Let's start with the end of the world, and then we'll go to the origins of the New Age, and then the Christian church's view. First of all, we've been hearing about this idea of the end of the world for hundreds, if not thousands, of years. There have been religions around the world talking about the end of the world. And especially nowadays with the world today. The end of the world, which implies uh, a world conflagration of wars, and violence, atomic destruction, chaotic destruction of the human race, famine, disease, wars, violence, revolutions. The entire idea of the end of the world is apocalyptic in proportions implying the end of humanity itself let's see what the actual term end of the world really means from the Bible's viewpoint. We have books called the End of the World: How will the world end the atomic bomb and the end of the world uh, the New Testament King James Version talks about in the book of Matthew 13 it talks about, it says that, Jesus said, the enemy that sowed them is the devil, and the harvest is the end of the world. There's Jesus talking about the end of the world. End of the world, but important is, what does the word world mean, and where does it come from? Interesting also, in another scripture in the Bible, Jesus talks about something he called the regeneration. Uh, the footnote says it will mean a renewal or recreation of the whole social order on earth. Jesus talked about this regeneration and then adds that that regeneration will be God's kingdom. Here we have in the scriptures, talking about what Jesus said, Verily I say unto you, you who follow me in the regeneration of the world. We've seen regeneration means a making it new, recreating the whole- Renewal
0: of the earth. And we find
3: other Bible translations when speaking about this recreation of the social order of the world. It refers to it as the new world. Flood it out. Flood the zone every
0: once in a while. In the
3: Interpreter's Bible Dictionary, we see uh, talking about the regeneration. And it says that this regeneration, there is a reward in the world to come, which is a regeneration or a new world. So it does not imply that there's a destruction of the whole humanity in the world when there's going to be a reward in the time of re- regeneration or the new world. The Commentary Bible says, the promise has to do with the new world, a regeneration or a rebirth in an age to come. There will be a new heavens and a new earth. Here on, in, the, in the Bible encyclopedia it says in the new world, Or the regeneration, again, that word keeps coming up. Josephus used it as the restoration of the land of Israel. Jewish hopes uh, await a renewal, both of the land and the entire world. And so the son of man, Jesus, his domination will be in the time which is called the new age. So in the New Testament word world is actually a Greek word, aeon. Aeon does not mean world, it was a mistranslation and a misunderstanding by the church fathers who translated the Latin Vulgate. They took the word from the Greek aeon and thought it meant world, when now we understand no, it was a mistake, world is is age, the word age is actually uh, aeon. So. When you're talking about, when you hear people talking about the end of the world, no, it's the end of an age, which implies that there's a new age coming. And there's been other ages in in the past, and we're living in a particular age now, and there will be a new age coming. For instance, here's a quote from a reference work on the Bible. It says, the world, or age to come was a familiar expression among the Jews for the Messiah's kingdom and in the New Testament it's employed partly in regard to the kingdom as now established and partly in regard to the future development the age of glory it is used in this latter sense by our Lord and the ages of the world are therefore the great cycles of time they are great ages where the degeneracy and corruption or the progression and development through which it has always been destined to pass and in part has passed already so what we're talking about in a new age is the ages of time which have come and gone civilizations are founded and grow and then they die and new and new civilizations come and so the whole idea of aeon is a continual progression Of the ages of the world, here in John 39:32, it says sometimes the world, and especially this world, seems to denote where elsewhere in the New Testament is called the present age, a world. The New Oxford Dictionary, with the Apocrypha, says at the top, Jesus said, "I say to you that in the new world." So here's Jesus talking about the new world, no, new age. Interpreters Bible Dictionary. It says consummation is fitly celebrated by a new song, when the return from exile heralds a new age. Now we're getting it right. So the, it says goes on to say the New Testament idea. are
0: taken ministry, up new teaching and to the he kingdom
3: of God introduced by wine. His bearers recognize. In his ministry, a new teaching, a new age which draws with his ministry is a regeneration or a new world.
0: Yeah, well, But what's it's the new point? age.
3: Why, why is it such a new in don't? Matthew, we see the Quiet. study Bible dictionary, it says where Jesus said to his apostles, truly I say to you in the new world, again, the misunderstanding of the word Aon. It's the new age. Expository Dictionary of the Bible says the Greek words, various Greek words are translated world, and the Bible, age, aeon, which means age, in translated world. So here's a classic example, just showing you very simply that the translators of the Bible misunderstood the Greek words Now, we will see that many modern Bible translations are correct when they are translating the word aeon, not as world, but as an age. Here we have, for instance, Jesus said, I will be with you. He's talking about his apostles. And he said, I will be with you even to the end of the age, not world, end of the age. The Holy Bible, new and old translations, we see Mark's clear distinction between the reward already in this age and the reward in the age to come, showing that those two ages, the old age and the new age. And it says in the Bible, in the age to come. New Testament says in this is Ephesians two, it says in the ages to come. This is a new translation. And now they're doing it right. Now they're saying that uh, aeon means age. Ephesians says in the ages to come. We even have Jesus himself.
0: Hi there, welcome back. We're on a Jordan Maxwell binge-fest on Gaia. This is called Maseroth, Ordinances of Heaven. Da 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 Jordan Maxwell thanks for three thirty one K Just had a biggest spike I've ever seen on my podcast. Glad law enforcement's learning something. Fuck you pigs.
1: Gimme back my animals.
0: Of Hook shot, bitches. Top for so What's much Maseroth, of I the forget? world
3: today is ill-informed about symbols and signs, that's what I do. I try and help people to understand the symbolism the signs, the hidden indicators of where we are in the period of time and where we're going. And what's coming because actually today there's so much violence and hatred among peoples and different groups because no one seems to understand we're all one people on the earth and we all have one history of the earth in the times in which we're living and so we need to realize that all the different religions
0: so it's are basically
3: telling us certain things Catholic about the churches. ordinances of heaven i think it will help sun the world cult. and where we're going if we all stop looking at symbols and emblems and educating ourselves to what these things
0: mean. Edumification is the answer.
3: Job 38, 33, where it says, God is saying to Job, can you bind the chains of the Pleiades? The Pleiades is one of the constellations in the heavens. And so here God is saying, can you bind the uh, chains of the Pleiades? Can you lead forth the constellations in their seasons? And then it says in 33, do you know the ordinances of heaven? The ordinances simply means a decree or a law, or a directive. It's the law to understand. So God is asking Job, do you understand the laws that govern the heavens? I'm asking the same question today. First of all, in order to know the ordinances of heaven, you must know the most important part or feature of the laws of heaven. The word in the Bible is Maseroth, the ordinances of heaven. If you go to Job 38, 32, you will see the word Maseroth. And in the footnotes. is... Now, a lot of people think that the Zodiac should not be connected to Christianity or the Bible at all. Actually, in point of fact, the Zodiac is the basis for both Old and New Testament. When you consult Bible references like the Bible, dictionaries, and encyclopedias, you look up the word Maserati and it will tell you it's the 12 signs of the Zodiac. We are given to understand in the Bible that God created the Zodiac. And that may sound strange to a lot of people, because most people think of the Zodiac as something evil, especially in Christianity. But no, the Zodiac is the basis for much of our learning today, much of our symbolism today, especially in religion and politics. I mean, even the watch you wear uh, is 12 signs of the Zodiac, or the 12 signs that go in a circle. And that's what the word Zodiac means, the 12 signs. We talk about the kingdom of God all the time, but most people don't realize what the kingdom really is. We humans put uh, different life forms into different uh, categories. We say fish are in schools, and cattle are in herds. What kind of life forms do we humans say are in a kingdom if it isn't animals, animal kingdom. The Greeks came up with uh, the idea that the zodiac was a kingdom of animals that circled the earth. And so when we say in our prayers, even in the uh, Roman system that gave us a lot of our understanding of the zodiac today, we say in our prayers, our Father who art in heaven hallowed be thy name, let thy kingdom come, and let thy will be done on the earth as it is in heaven. We are living our lives in the zodiac. All cultures in the world recognize that the zodiac is important in their theology and their belief systems. When you go to uh, uh, Bible bookstores or Bible seminaries, Go into the large libraries, and you will begin to see that there are so many books that are written by Christian and Jewish theologians, and people who study religion. Uh, Wycliffe Bible Commentary talks about, to qualify as a director and judge of man's life on earth, one must be able to govern the heavenly bodies that rule the earth. Note the repeated mention of the influence of the atmospheric or astral heavens on earthly affairs. We're talking astrology. Here in the New Interpreters Bible, it says uh, some connection between what happens in the heavens and what happens on earth is presupposed in the question that Job is being asked by God if he knows the ordinances of heaven. Being asked that question obviously means that God has assigned ordinances in heaven, and we're calling it the Zodiac, Maserat. Let's go back to Genesis 1.14 while we're on this subject, and in Genesis, the first book of the Bible, the first page says, God said, let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens to divide the day from the night, and let them be for signs. Another Bible translation says, And God said, Let there be light holders in the firmament of the heavens to divide the day from night, and let them be for signs. The word signs means things to come in Hebrew. The word for signs, the word is "oth," O-T-H. This is a Hebrew word which is translated in the Bible as just things to come. Well, that's what the Zodiac uh, purports to do. It tells you about things to come. All Christians are aware that Jesus says to his apostles that in my Father's house are many mansions. Dictators and and kings have always felt that there's a mansion in heaven for them. Well, it's a misunderstanding. The incorrect way is to say in my Father's house are many mansions. But other translations say in my Father's house are many abodes. Abodes is where you live, and where you are is in your abode. And my Father's abode are many dwelling places. Oh, now we're getting to it. Because the heavens is where God is, and if God is in heaven, the scripture says that in my Father's abode are many houses, are many resting places for the sun, houses of the zodiac. Basically, it boils down to this that both the Old and New Testament are based on astrology. The 12 signs of the Zodiac is, is part of the number 12 in Christianity. There were 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 brothers of Joseph, the 12 breastplate stones on the high priest, and then the 12 apostles. Look in the Bible, and you will see how many times 12 is used. It's all based on the 12 signs of the zodiac. There was no 12 tribes of Israel. Each one of those signs in the 12 tribes of Israel was an astrological indicator as to what each month represented in the ancient Jewish religion. And the ancient Jewish religion understood this. Its people today who are not studying theology do not understand that the whole of the Old and New Testament is a metaphor Collins Study Dictionary says, the Lord made the constellations of Pleiades and Orion. I don't know how one could read something like this and not see that the Bible is saying God made the constellations of the Zodiac. New International Bible says, He, God, is the maker of the Bear and Orion and the Pleiades and the constellations of the South. So if you want to find a fault with astrology, then you are finding fault with the ideas and concepts that God has put into the heavens as laws. many philosophers have talked about that foolish people, ignorant and foolish people are dominated by the zodiac. They don't know that their personalities and things that happen to them are because of the stars and the moon and the, and the influence of these heavenly signs but that the wise people are guided uh, by these sides. And so it occurred to me that, that for thousands of years, mankind has navigated around the world on the high seas by a knowledge of the stars. And so the Bible is saying you should navigate your life by the stars. Here we have a typical publication in Christianity talking about astrology as satanic, and that's why I'm spending so much time talking about the biblical reference words, saying that, no, it is created by God. It's not satanic. If you really are interested in theological and spiritual subjects, especially in relation to the Bible, you need to get the companion Bible by Kriegel because it's an astounding work where it gives one half of the page is the is the scripture the other half of of each page are the footnotes and the footnotes will actually blow you away because it tells you the truth about what these symbols really mean and where they came from in the back of the uh, creedal bible it Creagle talks about Bible. the word and where it came from in the Hebrew and what it means. And it, it basically is saying that it is uh, telling you about things to come. Astrology. Creagle
0: Bible.
3: So here we see the four seasons, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, writing a story about their risen Savior. And what do we see them all for writing about? the Son. This is why Jesus had 12 apostles. Jesus represents God's Son, not S-O-N, S-U-N. Jesus is a metaphor in the New Testament for the Son, and He was our risen Savior. Of course, the sun rises each morning. You'll see this famous painting where there are 12 apostles, And to Jesus' right, there's the first apostle to his right is a woman. A lot of people do not know that one of the 12 apostles of Jesus was a woman. Why? Because there is a zodiological sign called Virgo. Virgo was a virgin. That's why you have to have one woman in there to represent Virgo. The 12 apostles are the 12 signs of the zodiac. Now let's look at some of the zodiac symbols used in religious history. And we'll start with Taurus de Bull. The age of Taurus was the age of agriculture when the cows and, and animals that we were now beginning to use as food, that was just one of the qualities of the age of Taurus. The age of Taurus is between 4400 and 2200 BC. And keep in mind that Taurus the bull was recognized all over the world by all governments and all religions of the world. Everybody knew what it meant, except us today. So this is why you have words like holy cow, and the cow is still holy in in, in India today. We see the Egyptians worshiping the sun between the the horns of the bull. The sun is very important to the twelve signs of the zodiac. Most people do not realize that Taurus being in the in the heavens as a constellational sign was very, very important to Judaism. Here is Taurus, the cow, the bull, and he's in heaven. You see the sun behind him, so the sun is in the age of Taurus the bull. And, of course, we have many stories about the the Jews worshiping the golden calf. People don't understand what that story is all about. Moses goes up to the mountain to talk with God because it is time for God to change the ordinances of heaven. It's important here to remember that each sign of the constellation, last 2150 years every 2150 years the world changes completely all the great religions of the world realize that and now Moses comes down with a new beginning of a new way to worship God a new time when God is going to be worshiped in a different way and so Moses goes up to find out what that new way of worship that God wants people to do. And so we have the story of the golden calf. Golden, well, because the sun is golden. And calf is a bull. So we have the golden calf or the bull, Taurus, and the sun in the Taurus. Today, Israel is trying to bring back the good old days of bull worship. But it's it's impossible, because Taurus is gone. We're in the age of Pisces, and they want to go back to the old days, the way we worship God in the old days with the, the golden calf. We're in Pisces, and we're at the end of Pisces. That's why the Christians talk about the end times we're living in, the last days we're living in. The last days of what? The last days of Pisces. So now we have to find the perfect bull. The Temple Institute says that you need to find a red heifer that's born in Israel. and It has to be a particular bull. The Israeli government is planning a new temple coming in Israel. And of course, it will be assumed that they're going to go back to all of the old ways of the de to bull. Well, so therefore they got this Jewish girl picking fleas off of a cow because they want to make sure the bull is going to be completely clean, look his best, smell good, so that they can cut his head off and bring about the dispensation of de to bull again. But the same bull and Christian churches also, Christians are equally as ignorant and ill-informed about their foundations of their religion. Now you'll see this one shows in the yellow square the bull. They, the, the Catholic Church in the Vatican realizes that there was a time, 2150 years long, when God was ruling the earth through Taurus the bull. And this is where we get our idea of holy cow. Let's look at another zodiac symbol in religious history. This is very important in relation to Jewish history. Aries, the ram, is the next constellation after Taurus the Bull. The Jewish system of theology understood that 2,150 years has passed. Now we move into the next age that Moses brought us into. Because Moses brought us into a new dispensation. And when the Jewish people would not accept the idea at the time, we're told in the Bible that Moses became so frustrated he threw down and broke the law, so he was the first lawbreaker. The astrological time of Aries was from 2000 BC to 180, that's a 2,150-year uh, period of time that the Jews were now to worship their God in the age of Aries, the Ram. In Egypt, of course, they have the Ram. You'll see the uh, the, the sun in the age of Aries, the Ram. The ram god is is very famous all over Egypt. And Aries the ram is very important, not only in Egypt, but in the Old Testament Hebrew. You'll still see it today, Aries the ram. That's why Jews blow the ram's horn. Instead of parading around with the golden calf and the bull, now, today, they blow the ram's horn. And so they don't realize that not only the Jews blow the ram's horn, but there are many cultures around the world that blew the ram's horn during the age of Aries the ram. That's why today we have the shofar or the ram's horn. You go back to the Vatican, and you will see the same painting uh, that was with Taurus the bull. Then you go back and see it's uh, Ares the ram. Uh, Since A.D. 325, we have been living in the site of the age of Pisces, Pisces the two fish. Christianity is the focal point of what we call Pisces. Pisces represents religion, a different kind of religion. Before it was Judaism, now there's Christianity dominates the world and so it has nothing to do with the christians uh, fighting jews or the jews hating christians that has to do with the symbolism in which the world is living and we happen to be living in the age of pisces the two fish so pisces is the age of a new religion and if you remember that god's son Jesus, S-U-N, fed his followers in the Bible with two fish. This was in John 19, it says two fish that the, that the young boy who brought to Jesus five loaves of bread, two fish. It's a symbol of the age of Pisces, the time of Christianity to dominate the world. And then here it is again in the Vatican, you will see. Pisces, the sign in the Zodiac. Even in Charter's Cathedral, the stained glass windows in the great church even says Pisces. The fish of the early third century appears to be the most ancient Christian inscription. And what do you see in the inscription but two fish? Pisces. Even in the Islamic religion today, uh, recognize that the zodiac symbols are from God. The Islamic world has many beautiful paintings of the twelve signs of the zodiac, so they understood that the zodiac is from God, and they have a very good understanding, going back to their uh, ancient history, of the symbols of of the zodiac. The discovery in the oldest Christian church, and this is really interesting. There was an old Christian church found, and it's called, it was referred to as the oldest single Christian church ever found in Israel. And it was a big story at the time it came out that in the area called Megiddo, Israel was going to build a wing onto an existing building. And so they had their people go out and clean out this area where they're going to build the new wing to the building. And they wanted to dig down to put the foundation. And when they dug down, they, they hit a floor. They hit a, a mosaic floor. And so they, they discovered when they started to clean the floor off, what did they find? Well, here they are when they have cleaned off the area. And what do you see on the floor? But the two fish the two fish of Pisces. And you'll see the round circle of the sun and the little spoke going around the circle is of course the sunburst. And in the middle of the sun is the two fish of Pisces. So Israel's saying this is the oldest church ever done and ever built. Well, there's Pisces, the beginning of Christianity. Christianity today is simply the sun in the age of Pisces. There are so many articles talking about the Zodiac in relation to Jesus. They don't realize Jesus is the Son, a metaphor, S-U-N. And it's talking about his 12 apostles or his 12 followers or the 12 signs of the Zodiac. Jesus with his 12 apostles, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four seasons. And this is why they're three months in each season. Christianity today is replete with saying, that we're living in the last days, we're living in the end times. Of course, we're living in the last days of Pisces, which means the next one coming is going to be the age of Aquarius. Aquarius is the water bearer. Very important point here that proves what we're talking about as astrology we are now facing the next 2,150 years when the sun will officially be in the constellation of Aquarius, the water bearer. And so in the New Testament, in the book of Luke 22, the apostles are asking Jesus, now that you're going to die, where are we going to go? We are your 12 followers, but where are we going to go? And so Jesus answers them and in the book of Luke 22:10, where Jesus said unto them, Behold, when you enter into the city, there shall a man meet you bearing a picture of water. Follow him into the house where he enters in. It's the house of Aquarius. And Aquarius is the water bearer. But we know that this was talking about an astrological sign why? Because men never carried water, ever. In the ancient world, that was something that a man would never do, is to carry water. That was a woman's job, period. So why did Jesus say, look for the man with the water pitcher"? As an astrological sign. The whole of the Bible, both Old and New Testament, is a metaphor, as a symbolic story that the theologians have known for, for hundreds of years, but nobody is telling the public. That's why I think it's important to bring this out that people need to know there's nothing wrong with the zodiac. The Bible, both old and new, Testament says God created it. So if you're calling down evil upon the zodiac as a work of the devil, that's not what the scriptures say at all. And like the scripture says in the Bible, when God said to his people, do not call down evil upon something I have cleansed. When I make something, don't you call it evil. Well, this is what I'm saying that we need to keep in mind today. When you talk about astrology and the zodiac, God made that according to the scriptures. So we see the man with the water pitcher is all over the world and Christian churches. But the Christians don't know that. They don't understand what these symbols mean. The idea that most people have about the coming age of Aquarius is that it will be an age where there'll be a lot more openness to society and people will be far easier to find information and have new ideas and new concepts What we're talking about is trying to educate the people of this world to the fact that the Zodiac dominates, as we showed in the beginning, dominates the earth and our heavens. And we need to know the ordinances of heaven. And the ordinances of heaven are basically the Zodiac. It rules the heavens over the earth. I hope we've been able to open your eyes to some of the symbolic meanings that we find in life.
1: This is Secret Life of Symbols.
3: If we go back to Genesis 1, the very first chapter in the Bible, Genesis 1, so many people today believe and have been told, and that's why they believe it, that God made us, God made man. And they will point to the scripture that says God created Adam and Eve. And then they will say, see, there it is, God made man. But that's not what the Bible says. It doesn't say that God made man. In the beginning, the first chapter of Genesis says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But that's not exactly what it says in the Hebrew. This is why we are emphasizing that it says God created the heavens and the earth. But in Hebrew, the word God is L E L. So if we were to read this first chapter, the first verse, uh, in Hebrew, it would say, in the beginning, El created the heavens and the earth. But that's not what it says in Hebrew. It says, in the beginning, Elohim created the heavens and the earth, not El. In the beginning of the heavens and the earth, which are now. I came across this many, many years ago, talking with a very impressive, uh, well-known a rabbi, he was the one that put me onto this when I was very young, that uh, God did not create, he said, God did not create man. There's nowhere in the Old Testament, or what you call the Old Testament, where it says God created man. Notice it just doesn't say that. And so I began to look at this, and he gave me all the, the ideas you know, a long time ago. So the first thing we need to look at is, uh, as I said, the word is incorrect. God is El in Hebrew, but it's Elohim. And Elohim means the gods in the plural, more than one God. So the correct understanding of Genesis 1-1 is that in the beginning, the gods created the heavens and the earth. We need to define our terms first about God, and what does the word God mean in the Old Testament Hebrew? Uh, Here it is uh, for you, this is God, in the Hebrew, is Elohim, God's, more than one. So in uh, Genesis 1.1, 1, 1, it says, In the beginning, Elohim created the heavens and the earth. So it's more than one God. But here's the important part. We'll see it again. This is from another Bible translation where the word God shows up, and then it says in Hebrew, it's Elohim, which is plural, more than one. So, God Elohim is plural. The word Elohim, on the top it says the word Elohim is a plural word. In Hebrew, the plural form of the noun ends in M-I-M-O-T. Elohim is a plural form. On the bottom it says it is interesting to note that even though Elohim is plural, the Hebrew dictionary still translates it God instead of God. This is what has confused people around the world, because the actual word in the Bible is God's, and this is why you will see in a lot of the reference works, they will make the distinction and show you this, the plural form of L. Now, when you go to the actual scriptures, in the Hebrew Bible, and the Jewish Bible, it says Elohim, we shall make man in our image and after our likeness. But it actually says in Hebrew, Elohim said we, W-E meaning more than one, we will make man. Remember the Moses with the 10 Commandments uh, where Moses receives the law and the 10 Commandments from God, and what is the first commandment? The first commandment says, I am the Lord your God who have brought you out of the land of Egypt and of the house of bondage, and you shall have no other gods before me. He didn't say there are no other gods. He just said you will have no other gods before me. The emphasis I was told many years ago was uh, Rabbi pointed out is that God is saying to the Hebrew people with the Ten Commandments, I am the Lord, your God. You picked me. So uh, 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 there's a group what I'm saying is that picture of say twelve or fourteen different gods and each one is equal to the uh, to every other one, but if you pick one and you make a deal with that one God, then you have a relationship with that God and so this is why uh, God says to the Hebrews, "I am the Lord your God, and I shall not have any other gods before me so. Basically, it's like a young man telling his fiance, you know, there are many other young men out there like me, but I'm supposed to, you know, I'm going steady with you, so I don't want to have any other young men in my place. So, God you know, was a jealous God, but I, you know, it's understandable if there were many other gods. So, uh, thou shalt have no other gods before me. He didn't say there weren't any. Now, if you read from Exodus 20, uh, verse 3, this is just some of the ways that it is expressed in different translations. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Yes, I have no other gods. Then, in the uh, Hebrew, uh, the third one down is from the uh, from the Hebrew Bible, and it says, Thou shalt have no uh, no Elohim in uh, my presence. So. The ancient Hebrews realized that the word was mentioning more than one God, but it's the Christianity today that has uh, caused that Elohim to be brought down to a singular term. And there's a lot of um, talk about this now, it's starting to come out, that, that there's a lot of question about what does Elohim mean? Well, it just means more than one deity. Judaism is said to be a first monotheistic religion. Mono, meaning one, theistic, meaning uh, the study of God. But in point of fact, uh, Judaism is not a monotheistic religion. It is, the correct term is Heno, H-E-N-O, Heno theology. Uh, Heno theology means picking one God out of a group. And so if you would pick, as I said, if you pick one God out of the group, then he is your God and you are his people. It doesn't mean that that's the only God in the whole universe. No, it's just your God. Deuteronomy 11:16 says, but be careful not to let yourselves be seduced so that you turn aside serving other gods and worshiping them. So the Jewish God, the God of the Jews, was telling them, yes, there are other gods, but don't, but don't be worshiping them. First, you need to know that the people we call the ancient Hebrews were not Hebrews as such. They were, in fact, Phoenician or Canaanites, and this is where the you can trace back in the encyclopedias and in the, in the dictionaries about ancient Cana and the ancient area we call today Israel and Lebanon, that whole area. They were called Canaanites. Here we have another article. This one was from a Jewish magazine. It talks about it is the faith of the people of Judah, and it's the developed faith of the Semitic people known as Hebrews or Israelites. It is recognized as the first religious tradition noted for its monotheism. Then it goes on to say the Hebrew tradition did not begin as monotheism. So then we find out that all the people of the Middle East were anything but monotheistic. They were, the so called Hebrews, were in that time henotheistic, meaning picking one God out of many. Here at Liberty University, they had articles about henotheism toward the assessment of a divine plurality in, in the Hebrew Bible. I'm hoping to show you that this is understood in many Bible reference works, the word, henotheism, and what it actually means. The God of Israel and ancient peoples' growing understanding from henotheism to monotheism. We see this happening with the human race for thousands of years. Things change. You, you know, when religion begins and has a, a particular understanding of God, and give it a thousand years, and that changes, and add another thousand years, and it changes again. Until today, we have a whole new understanding that there was only one God in the universe, and he created man. Which, in point of fact, is not true. The one article in the middle of that was read, it says, um, We have previously established that the Mighty Ones are the sons of God, the assembly of messengers, and that Yahweh was a part of these messengers. So this is another, uh, another thought being expressed that Yahweh was one of the many gods. So again, it's important when you see here in the scriptures in the Hebrew it says Elohim said we shall make uh, man in our image. Now it's interesting too is that when Elohim, or the gods, said come let us make man in our image after our likeness uh as i was told many years ago this was a miss a misunderstanding of the sentence you should not read it that god said come let us make man in our image after our likeness and then that would prove that god made man no the correct way to understand it is that the god says come let us make man in our image after our likeness not make man, but let's make him in our image, out to our likeness. Well, that, of course, implies that we have been uh, tampered with, with our DNA. This is maybe a long time ago, but nonetheless, we were, we've were we been tampered with, and we still are today. We're still, even as humans, we're still tampering with our own DNA. If you go to the encyclopedias and reference works, you will see a lot of articles on Hebrew henotheism. You know, I'm saying this is because it is a well-established fact that that the ancient Hebrews were not a monotheistic religion. This is in the book of Psalms 82 where it says, God standeth in the congregation of the mighty, and he judgeth among the gods. we see God in the the Hebrew tradition is one of the many gods, and he's standing among all the other gods. Let's see how the other Bible versions say it. God takes his stand in the divine council, or Elohim God stands in the divine assembly, where there are other Elohim. Uh, God has taken his place in the divine council and in the midst of the gods. So the point is that, that there is more than one God and that the Hebrew God was just one out them. That's in the Old Testament, but even the Apostle Paul in the New Testament says basically the same thing in first corinthians in the new testament the apostle paul says for though there may be called gods whether in heaven or on earth as there be gods many and lords many then in first corinthians 8 5 it says for although there may be so-called gods whether in heaven or on earth as indeed there are many gods and there are many of them So let's go on and move on from there. We're going back to Genesis 1.26. And this is where we we see the scripture talks about when God is creating man or recreating man. And so it says, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And so there's a big difference between God making man or remaking him and their image and likeness. And what does that mean? Let's see how other Bibles put it. In the Good News Bible says, then God said, and now we shall make human beings and they will be like us and they will resemble us. Here in the New Living Translation of the Bible, it says, then God said, let us make human beings in our image to be like us common English Bible says, then God said, let us make humanity in our image to resemble us. This is a far better understanding of the scripture to start with. Here's the complete Jewish Bible that says, then God said, let us make humankind in our image, in the likeness of ourselves. So it begins to open up a whole new understanding about why we appear on earth as we do, it begins to look like that we are looking today like our creator. The creators who created us are messed with our DNA and caused us to begin more and more to look like them. So that opens up a whole new can of, uh, of worms, also, to show that there's more than one God. And so we look like the gods that created us. The reason I'm showing so many scriptures, I want you to understand, all Bibles are saying basically the same thing, that we look like the creators that created us, the Elohim, more than one. And in Genesis 3.22, and it said, The Lord God said, Behold, man has become one of us. Now he's become like us. He looks like us. He's acting like us and he is very destructive like us, having wars like us. So the Holy Bible basically says, now let us make man like us. God did not make man as you will see. The word in Hebrew for man is ish. I-S-H in Hebrew is man. But the Bible says God made Adam, A-D-M, not ish. But if you go back to, the Hebrew Bible, and read it, it says in this Hebrew Bible preface, it says, according to this, the Hebrew word for woman is isha, comes from the Hebrew word for man, ish. Here's another uh, reference word that said, interesting, the words for man and woman in Hebrew is identical. Man in Hebrew is pronounced ish, and looks like this. But the Bible does not say God created ish. It says God created A-D-M, and then this is important, too. It doesn't say that God created Adam. The letter was A-D-M. We, we humans added to make it to be Adam, but it's not Adam. It's A-D-M. Here we have the Hebrew translation. Going back to Hebrew, it says we again. We shall make Adam, A-D-M. Which means a different kind of creature, Adam, ADM, not Adam. And he will, and we will make him in the image of us, ADM, like so many other humans do. Even ADM, Adam, made human or male offspring. Look how the Bible describes it in Genesis five of, of uh, Genesis fifth chapter. It says. And Adam lived a hundred and thirty years and he begat a son in his own likeness, uh, after the image and called his son, Seth. See, and Adam lived hundred and thirty years and begat a son in his own image and likeness. So we're seeing that the man is now doing what the gods did also for us. They created us to look like them And we now have the ability to create uh, other offspring and we have a son who looks like us. There are many examples in the Bible that show that the gods look like us. No, we look like them. They look what they look like to start with. But we were made to look like them. As an example, a classic example is found in the story of Abraham's meeting three visitors that came to visit him. This is in Genesis 18 and 19. We're told that Abraham and Sarah were in their tent and that three men come walking up to the tent, three visitors. And when Abraham saw the three men, he went out and bowed down to them and said, What is my Lord saying to his servant? So we're told that Abraham knew this was the Lord, God. But he looked like another man. Well, that's what the scripture says. God said we will make men to look like us in our image. In chapter 18 in Genesis, it said, The Lord appeared unto him, this was Abraham, in the plains of memory, and he sat in the tent door in the heat of the day. And when Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked low, there were three men stood by him. And when he saw them, he ran out to meet them at the front temple door and bowed himself to the ground before these three men. And here he is bowing before the three men that Abraham obviously knew was God coming with uh, two of his assistant angels. And so it says that uh, the Lord appeared to Abraham. And then in Genesis 18:2 it says, And he lifted up his eyes and looked at the three men. Uh, was there, and so we're told that Abraham then asked the three men to stay for something to eat, to have lunch with him, and then they could go on. And the Lord said, "No, he was. They, they were on their way to take care of some business, and they didn't have time." And the scripture says that uh, that Abraham went out and insisted that they stay for just a short time to have lunch. And God then said to Abraham, "All right, then do that, but make it quick because we're in a hurry." And so the scripture goes on to say that Abraham's wife, Sarah, fixed a lunch for the three men. And now we are told that Abraham went out and sat under the tree with the three men as they had lunch. Now after eating, two of the three men got up to be on their way, while the third man stayed a bit longer to talk with Abraham. So now we got a guy sitting under the tree talking with Abraham. They just had lunch. And the men rose up from thence and looked towards Sodom, and Abraham went with them to bring them on their way. So we're told that the men that left they were on their way to somewhere. So Abraham quickly got up and escorted them a short distance on their way. Well they were on their way to Sodom. And it says, and then and Genesis 19, the next chapter, the two men that were having lunch with Abraham, and then they got up and walked towards Sodom, that's in chapter 18. But in chapter 19, it goes on to say, And there came two angels to Sodom and at evening time. And Lot sat at the gate of Sodom, and Lot, seeing these two angels, rose up to meet them. And he bowed himself uh, with his face to the ground. And he said, Behold now, my lords, turn in and I pray you to come and, and be in my home if you're going to be here. And the men said, again, we're interchanging angels and men. And so the men said to Lot, No, uh, we won't We won't stay at your home. We will just stay in the city and we'll be all right but it keeps interchanging men with angels, okay? So the point in this, according to the Bible, the word for God is Elohim and means the gods, plural, more than one, and they make us to look in their image and their likeness. We look like them, so that's why your male offspring looks human like you. So here's Abraham meeting the three men with Sarah, uh, offering them to stay for lunch, then we see this is a, a portrayed in many paintings in the Bible of the three men, which are actually three angels. It implies also that the third man was actually the Almighty God because it's capitalized in the Bible. So this is the Almighty God who looks like a man and stays and has, has lunch with uh, Abraham. So this is why the Christian New Testament has the Apostle Paul saying in the Bible, he says, Be not forgetful to entertain strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. Meaning that if you see someone, another man, be careful because it might not be, in fact, another man. It may be an angel who you look like. But he looks like what he looks like to start with and you were made into look in his image you were made to look like him so just be careful when you're talking to other people show respect because you never know who you're talking to here again in in the book of hebrews chapter two talking this is uh apostle paul again and it says remember to welcome strangers in your homes there were some who did that and welcomed angels without knowing it. Very interesting that we're beginning to see God didn't make a man. God remade man. He began to change, and this is why the scripture says it that way. Come, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. So today, what I'm saying is that we look like the gods who created us. And so this is why Abraham can go out and feed feed the three men. And then you find out, no, those are the angels that went into Sodom. All of this is actually very important in understanding theology and religion from the Bible's standpoint. This is something that most people have never heard before, that we look like the gods who created us, gods more than one. So, when we go back to Genesis 1 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens. No, it wasn't God, it was plural, Elohim. And Elohim, plural gods, comes, we give the term henotheistic, meaning more than one God. And it is also inter- interesting to understand that in Islam, in the Quran, everywhere God is talking to man, it's weak. You look it up in the Quran. You will see everywhere that God is talking to His people. He keeps saying, "We, we would did this. We are going to do that. We had you do this. We, we created you." And it actually says that in the Quran, "We created you." So indeed, there are many different gods. God is gods, and the gods made ADM, not Ish, which means they have t- they saw Ish, and then they took Ish and remade him into Adam, and we call it Adam. No, the gods came here, they saw this man, and therefore the man must have been like a Neanderthal man or some uh, some ancient creature, hominid, and the gods said, let us make him look like us. Let, him, let us make him in our image. So that's what I'm saying. God did not create man because man is ish. It doesn't say he made ish was already here. So the three visitors to Abraham were three men, but Abraham realized they were gods, they they were the creators, and the the gods were always pictured as either men with uh, angel wings or not. After the flood of Noah's day, chapter 9 says, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said unto them, Be fruitful, multiply, and replenish the earth. When I talked to the rabbi many years ago, I said, is this a correct translation that says, uh, Be fruitful, multiply, and replenish the earth? Re means to do it again. And he said, well, obviously, if there were people here on the earth and God decided to destroy that civilization of that time, and now there's nobody on the earth except uh, Noah and his sons and their wives. If you're going to have people on the earth, you're going to have to replenish the earth, obviously. So I said, all right, so therefore replenish is correct. Yes, yes. And the reason why I'm asking that is because re means more, do again. Well, if you go back to, there is again in the, in the Bible, in the Jewish Bible, it talks about Elohim. And Elohim said, replenish. Okay, this is important because if you go to Genesis 1, where God is uh, is creating Adam and his wife, it says, this is in Genesis 1, 27 and 28, it says, God created man in his own image after the image of God created he. Male and female created them. And God blessed them. And God said unto them, be fruitful, multiply, and read. The earth. So it's not to be understood. We're not to understand that God created man as the very first creature. No, when he created, when these gods created us, they said to replenish the earth, implying that, that some terrible catastrophe had happened on the earth. And that so much of life was lost. And so now the gods who created us say, go out now and redo it again. So how many people in the world have ever thought about Adam and Eve? We're not the first creatures on the earth. There have been civilizations here for millions of years. Genesis 1-2 says, and the earth was without form and void. That is an incorrect translation. It doesn't say that. Here it is again. Genesis 1-2, and the earth was without form and void. The English words in Genesis 1-2, without form and void, is mistranslation of the original Hebrew words tohu vavohu. The word tohu vavohu means not without form and void. If you go back to the uh, original Hebrew, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and then in Genesis 1-2 says, and the earth became a waste and a desolation. The earth became a waste and a desolation. It wasn't created without form and void. Obviously, if God's going to create something, it's got to have a form, and it's not going to be void, whatever that's supposed to mean. So therefore, the correct understanding is Genesis 1-2, the earth became a waste and a desolation. What are you talking about the earth became a waste and a desolation? We find that in, in the Bible, uh, again, it keeps telling us, that all of these translations keep telling us that it's actually became. It wasn't a form without, without form and void. It was formed the way God formed it. But it became a waste and a desolation. And here's another uh, translation of the scriptures, where it actually says the earth became a waste. Now, when you understand that the earth